0: Hebrews chapter 11, we are finishing the Life of Faith series today on schedule, I'll have you know. On schedule, when I announced that we would do this chapter in 11 weeks or so, you guys mocked me 11 weeks ago. And by the grace of God, you did, huh? I remember you, you mocked me. Now by the grace of God, we're going to finish today and we will try to finish well. We're going to start reading in verse 32, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. And uh, as we're reading right now, I'm going to make a couple comments, because the author says that he's out of time. Don't you wish the preachers would say that more often? The author says he's out of time, and so he stops naming people, and he just alludes to some Old Testament figures, and so I'll identify them for you when we get to the latter verses, okay? Starting in verse 32, the author says, what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, and became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection." And others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, probably referring to the prophet Jeremiah. Yes, also chains and imprisonment, perhaps Joseph. They were stoned, we believe that's Zechariah. They were sawn in two, we think that's Isaiah, They were tempted, maybe Joseph again. They were put to death by the sword, Uriah probably. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins, Elijah, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. All the prophets across the board in the OT. Verse 38, these were men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these having gained approval through their faith, didn't receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. Talking about Jesus. They looked forward to and labored toward Jesus, but we get to realize the coming of Jesus so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect or complete in their forward-looking faith. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word that is in front of us today. And Lord, this message today is challenging. It's challenged me to the core It's causing me to rethink some priorities, some spending habits, some attitudes, some scheduling. And we want you to do that in our lives, Lord. We want to give you liberty to do that. We want to open our, our finances and our schedule and our relationships and our futures up to you. We want you to be sovereign. We want to let you be God. We want you to rule and reign in our lives. We don't want to sort of predetermine everything according to our own wills, but we want to be open to your will, to your purposes, to your mission, for your glory. We need help to be those kind of people. And so Holy Spirit, come and help us. Come and make Jesus and his mission bigger and more beautiful and wonderful in our hearts and minds. And then cause us to be yielded to that, to want to walk in that. To be willing to give up everything for that, Lord, should you call. So Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. I ask that you please anoint me to teach your word, that I do it in a way that is faithful to scripture and that honors you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, help me to do that. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been a really fun time in the life of faith. Enjoyed talking about Abel and all that he taught us about worshiping and the priority of worship. Enjoyed Enoch over here. Who can forget Enoch walking with God and then he was not for God took him up and then Noah working by faith with God Abraham, who was willing to go. Where do Abraham over here? And Sarah, willing to go by faith when God called. Sarah, by faith, waiting on God. Abraham, well tried. His faith, well tried when called to sacrifice Isaac. Moses, in the back there, winning, by faith, winning the victory. Rahab, welcoming the purposes of God. And all these men and women alluded to in the text today speak of faith that is warring faith that is warring, faith that is at war. We need to begin to understand and we need to think in these terms that battle and warfare are the grammar of the life of faith. Battle and warfare are woven throughout the scripture for God's people from beginning to end. The New Testament and the Old Testament overflow with explicit references and stories of it and rich imagery concerning battle and warfare. Paul would say such things like this in 2 Timothy 2, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That warfare imagery of suffering and soldiering, and that we're called to that in the Christian life. We are called to warfare. Now, every war has its heroes. And David stands maybe above all of them in the Old Testament as the hero when it comes to warring by faith. His victory over Goliath was huge. The faith that he exercised, the trust that he exhibited in the Lord, he emerges from the warfare-ridden pages of Scripture as a hero of the faith. And our artist has done an incredible job of capturing this. You got to come up afterwards on stage and look at it. It's just phenomenal. Little David there, such a cute little guy and just scrawny in the Valley of Elah. It looks like the Valley of Elah in Israel. I've been there several times where this story actually literally happened. We see Israel in the background jumping up and down. Yeah, David, those wimps. And Goliath is so gnarly. You gotta come later and look at the details of Goliath. He's yoked like Pastor G. He's got just guns. But unlike Pastor G, he's got the nastiest teeth. He's got scars all over him because he's a warrior. There's, I didn't notice this last service. There's a bite mark out of his ear. What's this, Holyfield or something? Okay, and then this is so cool the rock is fully embedded in his forehead. You gotta come see it. It's gruesome. It's just, it's in there. Like, uh. and then his eyes, you can only see the whites of his eyes. Like his pupils already rolled back in his head. He just checked out. It's bam. Uh. It's the coolest painting in the world. I want this one for my house when we're done. And Enoch. Uh, and so, David emerges as this great hero of warring by faith. Now, we realize that the story of David and Goliath is historical, it's literal, and it's actual. But it also paints a picture of us for the warfare that we're engaged in. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood, right? Ephesians chapter 6. But our warfare is against Satan. Satan and his demons, right? That's what we war against, not flesh and blood. And so Goliath becomes then for us a teaching vehicle, if you will, a picture, if you will, of Satan. In these ways, Goliath was big, intimidating, and a mocker. And Satan seems like that sometimes. Sometimes he seems real big, you know what I mean? Sometimes he could seem overwhelming. And Goliath was big. He was nine and a half feet tall. Uh, it says that in First Samuel 17, it also lets us know that his armor weighed about 200 pounds and the head of his spear was about 19 pounds, it says in First Samuel 17. This was a really big guy. And sometimes Satan with his onslaught can seem so huge and intimidating. He was intimidating. We're told in 1 Samuel 17 that he was a champion of war. He was a warrior of warriors. He was a war machine. And he shouted openly at Israel. He came down in the valley of Elah for 40 days and 40 nights and openly called Israel out every morning, every night. What are you guys doing? Who will fight me? You guys are a bunch of whips. Come on, don't you have anybody that'll fight me? Bring it on. Just loud intimidating. First Peter chapter five, verse eight says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And lastly, David was a mocker. He mocked Israel and Satan's a mocker. Satan loves to make you feel stupid, doesn't he? Loves to mock you and tease you, especially in your failures. Anybody fail more than they want to? Just a few of you Just, just failed right there. I feel way more than I want to. And Satan loves to come in with his mocking. Doesn't he? Oh, oh, Pastor Britt, huh? Okay, Pastor, looking good today. That was awesome what you just did. Nobody saw you except for God and me, you scumbag. Anybody ever hear that? Just me? Okay. Satan is a mocker. He mocks. And, and sometimes when we want to engage in warfare, he'll mock. Oh, is that all you got? Really? What are you going to do? Have a prayer meeting? Really? <laughs> David was a mocker. I mean, Goliath, excuse me, was a mocker. When David came out on the battlefield, Goliath said this to him, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds. Just wanted to belittle him, Just mock him, Just make him feel worthless. Satan wants to do that in our lives. But you see, we're called to be more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. We're called to be more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Satan loves to throw our past at us. Has anybody noticed this? Anybody ever have Satan remind you of your past? Okay, I love this little saying. Next time Satan reminds you of your horrible past, you remind him of his horrible future. Right? Right? That's a good one because the Bible says that he is going to the lake of fire, that he's going to hell and there he will be tormented day and night forever. That's great news. Listen, some people think that hell is a big party with all the rock stars and everybody and Satan is like the MC over the gig. That's not hell. It's outer darkness. It's weeping. It's gnashing of teeth There's something called the worm that devours the flesh and never dies. And Satan is going there to be tormented. Now, regarding our past, Jesus Christ has covered it in his blood. Regarding Satan's future, Jesus Christ will send him to the lake of fire. So next time Satan reminds you of your horrible past, remind him of his horrible future. Don't have it. Don't listen to it. It's under the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, David had God confidence. God confidence. That's what we need to develop in life. David had God confidence. He had genuine faith. And so he was able to face the giant. And David said about this giant, I love this. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? You know, as a Jew, as one of the covenant people back in the day, that was about the worst thing you could say to someone. You uncircumcised dirtbag. It's like saying, we're God's people. You're not God's people. You still got that thing. You're not in the relationship. You're not in the covenant. You're on the outside. You're yucky. Ugh. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he taunts the armies of the living God? And so David gave it right back to him. And the reason that David was so bold and so brave was because for David, life wasn't about David. David. That's what makes him a man of faith and a hero of faith. For David, life wasn't about David. Life was about God. Life was about God and the glory of God and the purposes of God. It was about the living God. When was David offended? When somebody was coming against God. When did David go to war? When the character of God was at stake, when the purposes of God was at stake. It wasn't about him and his and what he could get in defending his own. It was about God and God's kingdom and God's glory. Now, we speak about that a lot, but we really got to internalize, get that message, receive it by faith, and begin to live that. We have this horrible propensity to make it about us in the minutia of life. In every detail, we make it about us. And that's a failure. When it comes to Christianity, that's a failure. I'm guilty like you're guilty. But let's be sanctified. Let's let the Lord work in our lives. Let's grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's not get stuck in selfishness. Let's not get stuck in an egocentric worldview. Let's grow beyond that. Let's transcend by the cross of Jesus Christ to live for a purpose that is bigger than us. The purpose of God. The mission of God. David was radical and a radical warrior and exemplifies faith warring because for David, it wasn't about David. It was about God, and that changed everything. Now, last week with Rahab, we talked about welcoming God's purposes in our life. Talked about the fact that God is on mission in the world around us. My friends, your friends, my family, your family, our community, God is on mission and the goal of Christian life is to be on mission with God. And we need to welcome then that mission, welcome those purposes. And we talked last week about the things that will keep us from welcoming those purposes. But here's what we need to realize this week. Last week, the mission of God and being on it, this week we must realize that there is no mission without opposition. There is no mission without opposition. If you endeavor to be on mission, you will experience opposition and satanic opposition. Not merely from flesh and blood, it will manifest itself in the physical realm sometimes as spiritual things do. But the onslaught, the opposition of hell will come against you if you're on mission. There is no mission without opposition. So then we talk about warring by faith, spiritual warfare. And the first thing that we need to realize, this is so fundamental, is that warfare is normative for the Christian life. Warfare is the normal thing in authentic Christian living. The Christian life is warfare. Because we're called to mission. And if you enter into the mission of Jesus Christ, that means you are declaring war with him on Satan. And he is moving forward in his kingdom purposes. And if you get on mission, you become part of that offensive move against satanic opposition. And so then warfare becomes normative, normal. That's what Christian life is. Yes, Jesus is the prince of peace and we have the peace of Christ to guard our hearts and minds. But if it wasn't war, why would it need to guard our hearts and minds? The Christian virtues are cast in this imagery of of, uh, armor, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, so on and so forth. Because what's normal in authentic Christian living is that we would be in a state of conflict with hell. Hell that's normal. There might be moments of peace and chill, but what's normal and to be expected and embraced is conflict with hell because Christian life is a call to mission. Now, I want to encourage you for a moment in our call to mission and say this, you do not need to be extraordinary to be extraordinarily used. Is that good news for anybody? Oh, such good news for me. You do not have to be extraordinary to be used extraordinarily by the Lord. For example, these cats mentioned in verse 32, it starts with Gideon. Gideon was used mightily by the Lord, but he was a frightened farmer when the Lord came to him. He was hiding down in a wine vat. He was down in the ground hiding out. He was supposed to be out threshing on a high place. He was threshing the wheat. Okay, you don't thresh wheat down in a wine vat in the ground because the way you thresh wheat is you get the winnowing fork and you throw the kernels up in the air and the wind come and separates the chaff from the wheat. And you do it on a mound or a mountain or a hill. But he was down inside a wine vat trying to use his little winnow fork and it doesn't work. The reason he did that was because Israel had enemies and he was downright scared. He was frightened. He was overwhelmed. He was on his heels. He was on the run. He was hiding out. He wasn't even able to live a normal life. He was in bondage to fear. And God came and changed things. But it didn't happen overnight for Gideon. God told him, Gideon, you know, I'm going to raise you up with an army and I'm going to give you the victory here. And what did Gideon do? Oh, okay, well, let me put out my fleece. You remember the story. Judges 6 and 7. Read it later if you don't know. He wanted to put out the fleece, so he put out this little animal skin at night and, and God, if you really mean this and have it to be wet, you know, and then when it happened, he'd put it out and say, okay, next time have it to be dry. And we got this Christian idea now of putting out the fleece right? So we put out the fleece. Oh, Lord, if she's the one I'm supposed to marry, have her walk up to me and she'll have a pink Channel Island surfboard and that'll be confirmation. And, <laughs> oh, no, that'll be the fleece, Lord. No. They're just that stupid. I talk to you guys all the time. You're just like me. Our fleeces are just that dumb. We need to realize before we adopt that methodology that that was an act of a lack of faith, not faith on the part of Gideon. God already told him what to do. And Gideon was like, okay, well, Lord, if you really mean it, then maybe send the pink surfboard. And then God did it. And then God told him what to do. Okay, Lord, if you really mean it, now make the surfboard green this time. I mean, that's what he was doing. God was so kind. God was so nice to him to throw that little dog a bone. And do it and answer the fleece. But God is kind like that. But you know, Gideon was a frightened farmer who was full of doubt and who, when he had God's word, did not grow in faith right away. But it was kind of slow. And yet God used him radically, mightily, incredibly, historically. Barak was a similar story mentioned there in verse 32. He got an astounding victory over Sisera who was the commander of the Canaanite army and Sisera had a big army and it was reinforced with 900 iron chariots. Israel didn't have no chariots, much less iron chariots and Sisera and the Canaanite army had 900 iron chariots and the Lord was calling Barak to go to battle and to get the victory but he was scared, he was frightened, he wasn't doing it and so Deborah the prophetess had to come along and Deborah said, what are you doing, dude? Get out and go to battle against Sisera, and the Lord will give you the victory. And he's like, oh, okay, well, Deborah, only if you go with me. What military commander says that to some lady? <laughs> supposed to be a military commander. Okay, if you go with me, Debbie. <laughs> and she told him like it was. Uh, and judges, she just said, okay, but everyone's gonna know that a woman went with you on the battlefield, and that's why you got the victory. <laughs> but... You see, Gideon and Barak, they weren't great men. They were actually pretty cheesy. They were like you and I. But God did great things through them, not because of who they are, but because of who he is. That's the difference in life. It's not about who we are. It's about who Jesus Christ is. Even with Samson, and this is a touchy one, because God gave Samson a lot of power and used him radically, but Samson was a womanizer. Samson led a sexually immoral lifestyle, Samson had a real problem with the lust of the flesh and it cost him everything. Samson was not really a godly man. And what that teaches us is that sometimes God uses us in spite of us. It doesn't teach us then that we should feel better about our sin. That's not what it teaches us. Look at Samson samson was doing it why can't i do it what god use him god will use me that's not what that teaches that's not the lesson okay that's wrong thinking you need to repent of that when we hear about the failures of these men and women of faith it's not to make us feel better about our sin it's not to make us be okay with our sin it's to make us be more in awe of the grace of god and the power of god and the mercy of god did he take a bonehead like samson and give them all that strength, give them all that power and use them powerfully and it gives us hope that maybe God will do it with us. Okay, so God will use us in spite of us. Got to get that. In spite, not because of you. We always think it's because of us. (laughs) Why wouldn't you use me, God? (laughs) Look at me, for sure. We think that way sometimes. I know. But God will use us in spite of us, not because of us. And then, don't miss this, God will use us for his glory. He will do awesome things in our life, not for us, but for his own glory. He gave great promises to Israel that he would make them a nation and he made them a nation. He let them know that they would be chastened and disciplined and scattered and he scattered them. And then he told them that he would bring them back into the land. But he clarified his motive, lest Israel be confused. He clarified his motive with Israel and he said in Ezekiel 36, verse verse 22, Thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you, by the way, have profaned among all the nations where you went. He clarifies his motive. Israel, I'm not doing this for you. I love you. You're my firstborn. Yes, you're my children. I love you. But it's simply not about you. I'm doing this for my namesake, for my glory that grates against some of your egos. Because you want God to do it for you and you have this sense of entitlement and that's wrong, it's demonic, it's wicked. God doesn't owe you anything. And God does things for his own glory. Even the blessings that God puts in our lives are for his own glory. Glory. There's something that's supposed to happen with blessings. We glean this from Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham, Abrahamic covenant. And he says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, okay? I'm going to make you the father of many. I'm going to make you a great nation and nations will come from you. And in you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, So he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you that others can be blessed. And then the ultimate purpose was that the nations would recognize Jesus as Messiah and worship him. It was the redemption of the nations, but he blessed a man that others might be blessed through the man that the person of Jesus Christ would be glorified among every man. That's the mission of God. That's what God does. He blesses us to bless others that they might glorify God. And we need to get that. We think the blessings are just for us. We hoard them. They stop with us. I'm, I'm like this. Stops with me. Hey, this is mine. Awesome. Cool. ba But you see, if you enter into the mission of God and you realize how God works, he blesses you that you might bless others that they would glorify God. That's what God is doing among the nations. If he's blessing this church, it's that we might bless others that God would be glorified among the nations. And all the various blessings of your life, your gifts, your finances, your influence, whatever it might be, need to catch that vision. Start blessing others to the glory of God and you will be involved in the mission of God. And so David, who's a man after God's own heart, he was on God's mission. He was working according to God's purpose. He was the greatest king of Israel. He's a great warrior. He was a lion killer and a bear killer and a giant slayer and an adulterer and a murderer. I mean, that's who he was. And that's who we are. And that just presses upon us that it's all about Jesus and not us. It's about who he is and not who we are. Don't let that justify your sin. Don't start to feel better about your sin. Start to feel better about Jesus and his forgiveness and his mercy and his power. What can we say to these things other than God is more merciful than we could imagine? Bigger than we ever thought possible. And even in spite of our greatest failures can use us for his glory. That's true of every single one of you. Every single one of you. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things to deal with the strong. That's who he chooses. Not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty, but you and I, normal, trippy, weird, cheesy people. And he does it for his own glory. Now, we don't need to be extraordinary to be extraordinarily used by God but we do need to be walking in faith. We do need to be cultivating an attitude of trust. And belief, it is the life of faith. And amazing things happen. Verse thirty-three: They conquered kingdoms. There are acts of righteousness. They obtained promises. Shut the mouths of lions. A reference to Daniel for sure. Quenched the power of fire. Probably Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong, and became mighty men in war, and put foreign armies to flight. So there we see once again that warfare language, that battle imagery, and these people experienced the battle because they were on God's mission, and there is no mission without opposition. Now the New Testament idea is this, Jesus said in Matthew 16 verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is building his church that is simultaneously victorious and conflicting. He's building his church. He's on the offense. He's moving forward, but there's resistance. I will build my church, but the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's building his church. He's on the offense. Jesus isn't on his heels. He's moving forward in mission but inevitable is conflict. He has declared war on Satan and he will win the war. He has won the war on the cross, but that will be made manifest at his second coming. And what we do is engage in that mission and immediately you're in opposition. And a lot of people choose to ride the pine, ride the pine their whole life, sit on the sidelines, sit on the bench. Don't want to be in the warfare. Don't want to be in the ministry. Don't want to be on mission. Don't want to talk the name of Jesus. Don't want to ruffle the feathers at work. Oh, don't you know what my principal said? And so they avoid a certain amount of opposition and that's a monumental failure. Life isn't about avoiding opposition. The Christian life is about conflict because we are anointed and appointed, empowered and commissioned by Jesus to represent him in culture and Satan hates it. If you're on mission, there's going to be opposition but the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell are a defensive mechanism. Jesus is going like this. They're a defensive mechanism and a retentive mechanism They keep people in but the kingdom of God is liberating and expansive. It goes forth and it sets people free. And if you want to be a part of that work, you need to be ready for some spiritual conflict. John Piper has a wonderful book. It's called Don't Waste Your Life. You should read it. It's a good one. Don't Waste Your Life. And in that, he talks about the fact that we need to have a wartime mentality. You know, everything changes like in World War II, you know, when this country went to war, I wasn't around, but some of y'all. You remember World War II? When we went to war and stuff changed. The whole nation had to rally. That that was a big deal. You know, San Francisco changed. They stopped, you know, being all about gold and entertainment and all this stuff. And and, uh, they went to being about iron and building ships and war machines and pumping those out and putting people to work. And it had a good effect in the city of San Francisco for a couple decades until the 60s hit. And then it all went to pot. But... (laughs) We need to have, I didn't even mean to do it. (laughs) We need to have this wartime mentality that we are in conflict then and that changes our decision-making process. And we need to be continually reminded that we're not a peacetime people. We have the peace of Jesus Christ, which surpasses comprehension, but we are at war with that peace because we fight from victory. Nevertheless, we're at war. That changes the way that we think. And so he says that this idea and phrase is helpful to him because, quote, it tells me that there's a war going on in the world between Christ and Satan, truth and falsehood, belief and unbelief. It tells me that there are weapons to be funded and used, but that these weapons are not swords or guns or bombs, but the gospel and prayer and self-sacrificial love. And it tells me that the stakes are higher than any other war in history. They are eternal and infinite. We're talking about heaven or hell, eternal joy or eternal torment. And so the Christian wants to free themselves from a peacetime mentality where, hey, let's just kick back and enjoy. Everything's good. In a sense, it is because we have Jesus. In a sense, it's not because they're going to hell. And so we forego the passing pleasures of sin to suffer ill treatment with the people of God. We're willing to sacrifice for the mission, for the cause. Someone needs to fund missionaries. Someone needs to fund the building of churches. Someone needs to be involved in the discipleship process. Somebody needs to come to the prayer meetings where the forces of hell are pushed back from over a community. Someone's got to preach the gospel on the streets and in the workplace. Someone's got to be willing to have a wartime mentality that says, I sacrifice some comfort and some ease for the greater good. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the glory of God, the mission of Christ to save, to seek and to save that which is lost. And it's not easy. Paul said to Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. And then he gave him this analogy. He said, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. In other words, a soldier is fully given to the task. They're not doing the menial, you know, normal things. I got to register my car, and I got to do this, and I got to do this and the other. We do that in life. It's an analogy. The soldier doesn't do those things because he's got to please the one who enlisted him. He's fully given to the mission, fully given to the task, fully given to the battle, not sweating those details. There's an analogy there. There's something we need to tease out. Yes, we're involved in this world. Yes, we have jobs. Yes, we have money. Yes, we have fun. Yes, we need to register our cars. But not to the neglect of the mission of God and the purpose of God and the glory of God. To some degree, we need to disentangle ourselves from our over-engagement with the things of this world which are temporal and passing away and fleeting. To be involved in that which is eternal and moving forward and glorious, the gospel and the mission of Jesus Christ. And for those who do it, war becomes the normal state of life. And warfare is consequential. This is not a make believe war, these are not war games. It's consequential. It's consequential in that there are victories as we read in verses 33 and 34. Real things happen. These victories are real, they are tangible, and they are transformative. I mean, God really moves in culture and in society and people that whole groups of people are transformed. Whole families are saved. Whole cities are changed. This is what God has done in history and is doing right now. These victories are real and tangible and transformative. But there are also Casualties. Every war has casualties. And these are real. Verse 35 says Yes, women received back their dead by resurrection, but others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection, the coming of the Lord. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with swords. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated, wandering around in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And the world wasn't worthy of men such as these. What this tells us is that there are real casualties in this war. I mean, in the mission of Jesus Christ, there are people that die. There are people that get tortured in the mission. There are people that get tormented. There are people that have their property removed, families ripped apart. This is real. There are real casualties and losses in spiritual warfare. Not everyone in this chapter had a miraculous deliverance. And yet everyone in this chapter is in this chapter. Meaning, they had great faith. Meaning, they gained approval. They gained a testimony, as it says in verse 39. God was pleased with them. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it was impossible to please God. If they didn't have great faith and if God wasn't pleased, they wouldn't be in the chapter. They lost their lives. They were tormented. They were tortured. They were killed. And this was seen as success in the eyes of God. Now, We need to learn to trust God even when things go horrible. And things can go horrible even when you're doing all the right things. Bad things do happen to good people. Isaiah was a good guy. He got sawn in two. Paul was an awesome guy. He was beat five times with rods, three times with a cat of nine tails. Jesus beaten, tortured, mocked, spit upon, and nailed to the cross. And it's no different in our lives. This is real war and there will be casualties, but here's what we need to know. That they result in the glory of God. That God, follow me, is glorified in our suffering, even in martyrdom. God is glorified in these things. It's a paradox that there is glory in shame. But the early church understood it. In Acts chapter 5, some of the disciples were beaten, right? They were scourged. They were whipped for preaching Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 41, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name and every day in the temple from house to house they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ now what we need to see then is how impactful that witness would have been in that community because everything everyone excuse me in Jerusalem knew that they had just gotten whipped by the sanhedrin and they came out going sick Praise the Lord. That was awesome. We got to suffer for Jesus. Let us tell you about Jesus. We're going to keep on teaching and preaching. I'll tell you what that did for the hearers and the watchers. They went, okay, there's something for real about Jesus. There's something really authentically going on here. You see, suffering is not merely the result of mission, But suffering can also be the means of mission. It's not only the result of mission, but it can be the means of mission. 1 Peter 4, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but he is to glorify God in this name. Here's what scripture and history reveal that when Christians are martyred, there is a great move of salvation, okay? Because eyes are opened. Go back to the cross of Jesus Christ. The Roman centurion in Mark chapter 15, the one who nailed him to the cross ended up saying, this was certainly the son of God. Why did he say that? It tells us in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, when he observed the manner in which Christ died. There was something in his dying that was so otherworldly that he recognized Christ himself as being otherworldly. Why? Because Christ was on the cross saying things like, forgive them father, they don't know what they're doing. Saying things to a criminal like today, you will be with me in paradise caring for his mother and speaking to John, there was this realization that this death, as gruesome as it was, was for a bigger cause, a bigger purpose, and that something was being accomplished in it. Now the Holy Spirit orchestrates the same thing throughout history and in the world today, that when men and women who are faithful to mission are tortured or tormented or put to death in that mission, the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of people to see, wait, wait what they believe is real. They're dying for it. They're given for it. There's something real here, and the scales are removed from the eyes. Therefore, in martyrdom, in the shame of martyrdom, Satan is defeated. Because it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he blinds the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when they see the martyrs, the scales are removed by the Holy Spirit, and they see the light of the glory of the gospel, and they're saved, and they're transformed, and redeemed and history shows that where the greatest persecution goes the church grows that's what we see in history that's why Tertullian Christian author and theologian and apologist said in the year 197 that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church I mean Rome was declared a Christian nation but not until hundreds of thousands of Christians were killed in the Colosseums of Rome. Peter himself crucified upside down in Rome. There are casualties, but it's not a true loss. All is gain in the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ wins and what Satan means for evil, God works for good. And there will be about 178,000 Christians killed in the world this year for their faith. And evangelical Christianity is the fastest growing religious movement on the face of the earth. There's a direct correlation. The last 50 years has seen more church growth than the previous 1900. The last 50 years have been the bloodiest 50 years in the history of, of the church there's a direct correlation whether we like it or not therefore Paul was able to say that Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death for me to live as Christ to die is gain he was simply willing to give it all for the mission he was willing to give it all and if he laid down his life that was gain it was no longer him who lived but Christ who lived in him anyway Now, let's come down out of the clouds and be real for a minute. Most of us are not called to martyrdom. You may not be called to die for Christ, but my brother, my sister, you have been called to live for Christ. And it takes great faith to live for Christ as it does to die for Christ. And I don't know that you can die for Christ until you've ever lived for Christ. And the calling on our lives is to live for the gospel and the glory and the mission of Jesus. And when we do that, it is a state of warfare. And spiritual warfare is normative, it's to be expected, and there will be victories, and there will be setbacks. But in the end, Jesus always wins. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 4 says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal way of glory far beyond comparison. While we look not to the things which are seen, don't get caught up in the here and now, but to the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The life of faith is a life that lives for eternity. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's a conviction of things not seen. It believes certain realities about Christ and so interacts differently with culture. We are called to live a life of faith, a life of mission, and it will mean opposition. But Jesus Christ is our victor and his love is better than life. Therefore, we will praise him with how we live. Amen? Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for your instruction. And we know it's hard, Lord. It's hard for me. It's been hard. Because I love comfort, security, the life of ease, fun things. You don't hate those things, Lord. You're just telling us that there's more. We just want to have our eyes open to that. We just want to see the more just want to live a little more for you and a little less for us. Show us a balance, Lord. We still need to be in the world, but teach us not to be of the world. Balance our lives. Get us off the bench and into the game. Get us on mission for your glory, King Jesus. I invite you guys to really just weigh your lives before the Lord today your priorities, your stuff. Slay it before the Lord and weigh it before the Lord. And let the Holy Spirit talk to you. You know, God's really nice. He's really nice. He's going to speak kindly to you today. He loves you. But he's concerned about his glory and so he wants to use you. So seek him now. Living for a time.